You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Friday, December the 27th. And thank you so much for tuning in here on this post-Boxing Day edition. On today's program, I'm going to be taking a look back over these past few months and revisit some conversations that I have had the pleasure of having. I am set to take a look at subjects including diversity in the sporting world and take a look specifically at hockey. This, of course, is in reaction to a number of stories including Don Cherry, Bill Peters, Mike Babcock and the firing of those individuals and the conversation that has sparked as a result of their dismissals. I will be discussing the issue of ride-hailing here in B.C. with Premier John Horgan having said that ride-hailing would be in place by Christmas this year, but clearly that has not happened, and one union has spoken out on this issue. UFCW has said that it is in favor of ride-hailing coming into B.C., but it wants to make sure it is done right before they begin operations. That was one conversation that I had. I also had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Kyla Lee, who is a lawyer with Acumen Law, who had some concerns about ride hailing and how that situation has progressed to date as well. But to begin today's show, I had an interesting discussion about head injuries and just how prevalent these injuries are amongst the homeless population. I spoke with a UBC student who helped author a paper which shows that one in every two people who live on the street has had to live through a traumatic brain injury. Here is a look at my conversation with Jacob Stubbs component that I led, which was this study, was to do what's called a systematic review at meta-analysis, which, like you said, synthesizes the results from all previous studies on this topic to sort of understand where the scientific knowledge is on this uh, topic. Yeah, so when you were compiling this information, I mean, you looked at some studies that have been published uh, between 95 and 2018, I believe. Um, some some other countries were involved when, when you were looking at this data, so Australia, Canada, Japan, uh, South Korea, the UK, and, and the States. Um, um, so when you when you kind of looked across these different countries, I mean, did you notice any differences in the data that uh, each country was able to put forward? Or, you know, was there any sort of similarities? Or, or, I mean, was Canada different than any of these places? That's a great question, and one we've fielded a few times now. But unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for you. There were just too few studies to be able to look sort of country by country. So while we um, noted that the studies were from individual countries, we weren't actually able to really robustly look at any country-specific differences. Okay, that's fair enough. So um, I guess why did, uh, or what do you think can be done now with this data? I mean, why do you, why do you think it was important to find out, uh, you know, and just in terms of its use, um, finding out that about 50% of the homeless population has suffered some form of traumatic brain injury? Uh, what, what do you think can be done with this information now that it's available? We, we found more than just the 50% number, too, just for a little bit of extra context. Sure. We also found that, perhaps more strikingly to me, that about one in four had a history of traumatic brain injury or TBI that was considered to be moderate or severe, um, and also that TBI is broadly associated with poor health and functioning. So as for the implications, um, to me, the first step here in addressing any problem, essentially, is recognizing there is one, which is what we did here. Um, but I think there's implications for two groups. One is healthcare workers, um, where we hope they will be able to have an increased awareness for the burden of TBI in this population. Um, identifying TBI or problems that stem from brain injury may help um, facilitate more targeted care and hopefully better outcomes. But second, there's a real need for better research on this topic to show uh, to better understand, I guess, how the health of these individuals is affected by TBI, but also what can be done in response. Did you 
Notice anything in terms of uh, maybe themes of how these brain injuries were occurring amongst people? I don't know if you if you dug very deep in sort of uh, you know what what the result or, or sort of what caused these brain injuries to occur. Uh, but I'm just curious if you know a general person, a general person, a person from the general public was a uh, suffered a, a traumatic brain injury. I mean, would they have gotten it potentially in a different way, or more likely to get it in a different way than someone of the homeless population? That's an excellent question, Jeff, and one thing that we did look at specifically. So for context, in the general population, the most common, what we call mechanism of injury is sports, falls, car accidents, that sort of thing. Um, what we show in this study is across all studies that have looked at mechanisms of injury in the homeless or marginally housed population, by far the most common mechanism of injury is assault. And when we look further to differences in sex, for women especially, this oftentimes occurs in the context of intimate partner violence. Do you think this, this kind of stuff was happening, I guess, prior to them being on the street? That's another thing that we tried to look at. So since this was a review, we're sort of limited by what studies um, have been previously done on this topic. So a lot of things were just associations. So we couldn't actually tell what caused what. But for a few, that we were actually able to do so. So we reviewed a few studies that were prospective, which means they followed people over time, generally a period of about a year. And one of the more notable things that we found is that traumatic brain injury is actually seems to be a risk factor for becoming homeless over a given year, but also conversely that homelessness itself is a risk factor for sustaining more TBI. So knowing that, I think it's starting to make me and our team think that TBI may actually represent a bit of a barrier to exiting homelessness or exiting an unstable housing situation. I also followed that up by speaking with Dr. Vijay Sithapathy from the Provincial Health Services Authority. He is also the Chief Medical Officer for BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, among other hats that he wears. Um, he says that the data obtained from this study, which was, of course, put together by Jacob Stubbs, who we just heard from, has definitely had an eye-opening effect. And he says this data will be useful in the way in which healthcare and mental health professionals deal with those who live on the street. So here's uh, my conversation with Dr. Vijay Sithapathy. So this recent study, which shows, you know, one in every two homeless people have suffered some form of a traumatic brain injury. I guess first and foremost for you as a mental health professional, I mean, is that data even surprising? No, absolutely not. Um, over the years, we've had a series of studies, you know, which have published very similar results. I mean, we, we're talking about um, the traumatic brain injury in homeless population ranging anywhere from about 10% to almost 50%. So again, this is definitely not surprising, and uh, we've seen this repeatedly over the years. But the important thing is, you know, where I work, in, in my area of work, particularly when I work with concurrent disorders, when the mental health and substance use problem, which occurs simultaneously, we have noted that, uh, that almost 80% of them, you know, when they have concurrent disorders, they've also reported some form of brain injury. So it's important to note, like, you know, the, the reasons why they, they have these problems and trying to understand the, the core issues or, or the deeper issues into, into this area. Do you have any idea or can you explain to me from, from your perspective just how uh, a traumatic brain injury would, would impact somebody? Like what, what sort of, I guess, changes would uh, result from having uh, sustained an injury like that? Traumatic brain injury, again, it depends on the severity of the impact or the severity of the injury. Mm -hmm. So that leads to what consequences the person may suffer from. And again, they categorize their brain injury as mild, moderate, and severe. And it's also important to note which area of the brain is affected. Because sometimes when the frontal part, we call it 
uh, the front area of the brain, if it gets affected, then the way the person uh, reacts to things, you know, they can become quite impulsive and they can become disinhibited. And that can lead to quite risk-taking behavior. So, so I think one is the severity, another is the area of the brain where the impact happens. And this impact can lead to multiple issues within several domains. You know, we're talking about physical health or emotional well-being or social activities. The person, the way he or she feels, things interact, everything can be affected. So knowing this and, and being aware that, uh, you know, it is a, a very strong likelihood that someone you might be dealing with has suffered a traumatic brain injury, does that at all change the way you would approach dealing with certain individuals? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, there, there has been enormous amount of research which has shown the prevalence or the high incidence of, uh, of traumatic brain injury in, in these individuals. Uh, the important thing is, you know, how do we apply in, in the real practice? We have developed some screening tools, you know, which we utilize. And the important message what I want to share is people with traumatic brain injury, especially in, in um, severely mentally ill uh, or substance use problems or having this marginalized housing state such as homelessness, they have underlying issues. And important, the important part is to, to how we screen these underlying issues, how do we screen the, the presence of traumatic brain injury and how they both correlate and how they are associated in, in the treatment, uh, what we provide. I mean, when we provide the treatment, if you don't understand the underlying issues, then, then this can lead to a very poor outcome or, or an inappropriate treatment pathway, which may not be very effective for the individual or for the provider who is providing the treatment too. So the most uh, essential message is that having a screening tool and trying to also screen for other underlying issues like mental health, substance use problems, and by treating the person as a whole and very comprehensively and individualized to treatment plan is the focus area we should we should be thinking about. So I found that to be quite an interesting conversation and I also found it to be quite disturbing. The fact that one in two people who deal with a lack of adequate housing are not only in a difficult position because of their living situation, but they're also in a difficult mental health position. And it's not necessarily a result of things like, you know, substance use, although it could be a contributing factor, but the fact that there's a good chance that we're a victim of some form of assault and suffered a traumatic brain injury as a result. Man, talk about finding yourself behind the eight ball in life. It's just a, a difficult way to, to have to go about living your life, being on the street and dealing with those mental health issues all at the same time. Definitely not the ideal place to be trying to live with those issues. Well, moving on to something maybe a little more positive, ride hailing. It is coming to BC, at least that's what our provincial government tells us. When will it be happening? Well, clearly it's not happening here in 2019, but that year, of course, almost over. But maybe, just maybe, we'll get it in 2020. I'll take a look at that subject after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, December the 27th. And thank you so much for tuning in here. We are taking a quick look back at some of the interviews I've done over the last little while and some subjects that, uh, you know, are still topical, despite the fact that we are set to head into a new year. Uh, yeah, things that happened in 2019, well, they're going to carry over into 2020. And that is, of course, the case when we're talking about ride hailing. Yes, uh, the Premier had said, well, when I first moved here in the summer, he'd said, we're going to have ride hailing by the fall. Well, the fall came and went, and he said, well, we're going to have ride-hailing in place by Christmas. Well, Christmas has since come and gone, and 
Well, there's still no ride-hailing service available here in the province of British Columbia. I spoke about this with Acumen Law's Kyla Lee, one of my uh, weekly guests that I have here on the Jeff Andrea Show. And let's just say Kyla isn't overly surprised by these continued delays. Uh, I don't see the review process coming to an end anytime soon. I mean, call me cynical, but anytime the government gives a timeline, I assume it's going to be twice as long as they say it's going to be. I mean, that's sort of been my experience just generally. Um, but there's been so many setbacks uh, for ride hailing um, between legislation that uh, I think really imposes too many obligations on, on the drivers and companies to the case before the Supreme Court of Canada that might undermine the ability of ride hailing companies to you know create a profitable business model. And now today, uh, to cater, uh, announcing that they're mm-hmm. shutting down their app um, and likely not going to be providing any ride-hailing services uh, in British Columbia. Those are huge setbacks that are only going to delay the timeline of this further. Um, I guess, so if you had mentioned, sorry, the, uh, the the case that's going on in Ontario when it comes to uh, the class action and, and, you know, trying to see uh, fair uh, employment standards being given to those who are being employed by ride-hailing companies. Um, do you think that... With if that case were to you know not uh, would lag on I guess if drag on a little bit and, and take a little while to actually go through the court system, do you think that has a big impact on the opening of these companies? Do you think there might be some companies that might wait uh, to to begin operations to see kind of how this plays out, or are they? Yeah, I'm assuming most of them are, are really raring to get going here. Lots of people are raring to get go, but a lot of people also, you know, can be very risk averse. It's a huge financial investment that you're making to start up a ride hailing company, you know, to take on all of these drivers, to develop an app, to provide the service, to get the licensing through the provincial government's approval process. Um, And uh, I think people don't want to make that gigantic financial investment when they don't know what the future is going to look like. And lots of lawyers will give the advice of wait and see. You know, we know the Supreme Court of Canada is going to render a decision on this likely in the next six months. Um, and so it's not a huge amount of time that you have to wait, but the you know, cost versus benefit of waiting might be more advantageous. Um, and so I do think that that's, that's throwing a wrench in the process and stalling a lot of the progress here. Meanwhile, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union has asked the government to make sure the rights of workers are taken into full consideration when these ride-hailing companies do come in. I spoke with UFCW 1518 local president Kim Novak, who just does not want to see something like what's happening in Ontario happen here. In Ontario, a class action lawsuit is now underway by Uber drivers because they were not viewed as Uber employees, and now there's a number of concerns about their rights. Here's my conversation with... Kim Novak. We are welcoming ride hailing into BC and, and we're excited to have it come in as something that we know the public really wants. One of our biggest concerns though is that these contracts do, uh, essentially require drivers to sign off that they are not employees and we say that they are. They are absolutely reliant on Uber and Lyft and, and the various other ride hailing companies that are there for rating to ensure that they're able to get future employment and future dr- rides. So with that in mind, I guess, what what are the the issues that arise as a result of that? What kind of concerns should a driver have if they're not considered technically an employee of one of these companies? Well, they wouldn't have access to basic BC employment standards. And so things like minimum wage, health and safety regulations that we know are a very critical issue for drivers that we've spoken to outside of the BC jurisdiction as well. And essentially having the ability to ensure that they are going to be paid for the work that they're doing when they are reliant on these employers in order to ensure future rides. Um, so I guess with that in mind, I guess what kind of wording would you like to see changed or what within these agreements that exist as they are now would you like to see changed that would make you okay with these companies launching? We'd be happy to see any ride-hailing company that comes to BC that commits to upholding employment standards and ensuring that that is enforced for any driver that drives with them would be fantastic. That's what we're looking for.
I mean, have you been paying attention to, to some of the concerns that are happening outside of the province of BC? I know, like, in Ontario, there's that class action lawsuit against Uber about concerns about just what you're raising, the fact that, you know, they don't have rights to things like minimum wage or vacation time, you know, those, those kind of basic rights that come with, with being a, a, some, a, an employee of, of, of an employer. Um, I mean, are you paying attention to some of these uh, dealings that are going on outside of the province to see sort of what changes should be made here and, and you know, some of the concerns that current drivers are dealing with elsewhere that couldn't be uh, avoided, I guess, here? If we, if we make sure the process is done right? That's exactly what we're doing. Uh, USCW Canada has been working on this campaign across the country for quite some time where Uber and Lyft and other ride-hailing companies have been operating. And we absolutely want to do it right when it comes to BC. We don't want to end up in these long legal battles where drivers and workers are really at, at the mercy of their employer. And so what we've seen in New Jersey is that there is a, a, a lawsuit there where the government has determined that these drivers are in fact employees and there are hundreds of millions of dollars in outstanding unemployment taxes that haven't been paid. And so what we're looking at doing is let's establish it when these ride hailing companies come into BC. Let's do it right from the beginning so that this can be a success for everyone involved in the public, the drivers, and the health and safety is upheld. Now, talking to a lot of people about this specific issue, there's a lot of just, you know, the general population that is really frustrated by the fact that it's taken so long to see these ride hailing companies launch. I mean, like I had mentioned off the top there that uh, uh, Premier John Horgan had said uh, not having these uh, in, in place by Christmas will not be a failure on the government's part, but I mean, he's been talking about bringing these services into the province for quite some time, and it just feels like another deadline that's going to come and go with these services not in place. But are you, I guess, happy to see that the government is, in fact, taking its time with this issue to make sure that it is done right? I mean, we all want to see it rushed and, and get out and, and, you know, have these services available to us. Um, but, but I guess from UFCW's perspective, it, it's good that it is taking as much time as it is. Well, we are not trying to delay it. I mean, the biggest thing that we want to do is have the Labor Board and the government hear our issue now so that ride hailing isn't delayed any further. We are happy to see that it's being taken seriously, though, and that the rights of workers, as, as work evolves in our province, as the gig economy employers come into BC, if we're able to establish better standards for workers now, it's going to be a long-term success for everyone. So by no means do we want to delay. We do want to make sure it's done right so that we are protecting the future of work in our province. Um, from that, from that uh, same vein, then, I guess, do you, do you see these changes being made before these companies launch? I mean, it just feels almost like uh, at this point in time, they're just delaying the licensing process, and that seems to be the one thing that's holding it up. But do you think some of these agreements will be rewritten before these companies actually launch, or, or do you have any thoughts on that? Well, we know that there are BC local ride-hailing companies that have already committed that they will uphold employment standards, and in some cases are willing to commit to paying a living wage and provide benefits. So certainly ride-hailing in BC will come in, and it will protect workers and their drivers. So we would hope that Lyft and Uber would do the same thing when they come into the market, so that way everyone who's driving for any of these companies has the same basic rights to employment standards. So from that then, I guess, uh, if you are someone who is thinking about uh, potentially driving for one of these ride-hailing companies, I guess, do you have a message for anyone who, who might be looking to become a driver and to make sure that they are, uh, you know, employed or, or whatever the term, I guess, you want to use, contracted by a company that does have the, work, the rights of workers in mind? Absolutely. Do your research. I mean, that's the most important thing is when, before you sign off on anything, make sure you really clearly understand exactly what it is. And look at the other ride-hailing companies that have applied for application at the PTB because that really is going to give you some insight into where you can go to ensure that you are having access to those employment standards. Definitely a lot to think about. I mean, from a potential employment perspective, I guess uh, potential drivers should really be con take, considering what the ramifications are of just c simply clicking accept on some of these terms and conditions that come with uh, you know becoming a Lyft or an Uber driver. It's uh, uh, pretty easy to just hit accept without actually reading any of the information that comes along with it. Absolutely. And we just continue to urge, you know, the Minister of Labor, the Minister of Transportation, and the BC Labor Board that now has our 
submission in front of them to really push this forward and ensure that the rights of workers are protected. And we'll continue to advocate for that and hope to see ride hailing be the success that it can be in our province. So Ms. Novak wants to see the rights of workers upheld when ride hailing comes. And I say, uh, I say when, but it really does feel more like an if at this point in time. Maybe 2020 will will prove to be the year that uh, ride-hailing does come to fruition here in B.C. Coming up next, hockey. The issue of racism and inclusion was certainly brought to the forefront here in 2019. I'll be talking more about that after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, December the 27th. And thanks so much for taking the time to listen on what is a beautiful day here in Kamloops. One issue that I've had the opportunity to explore recently was racism in the hockey world. Recent stories from the National Hockey League have raised this issue to a level that is really unprecedented in the hockey community. It started with Don Cherry. Yes, the much beloved yet much maligned hockey commentator and now former host of Hockey Night in Canada was removed from his position following comments made around Remembrance Day. Many in Canada took offense to what Cherry had to say. You people love you. you, They come here, whatever it is. You love our way of life. You love our milk and honey. At least you could pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. Whether or not you were taken aback by what Don Cherry had to say is not really the point of the conversation, but rather the conversation that those comments and his eventual dismissal helped spark is really what I want to touch on here today. So not long after the Don Cherry situation unfolded, we began to hear more stories out of the coaching world. When it came to the Toronto Maple Leafs, it was about Mike Babcock. After he was fired by the Leafs, stories of questionable coaching tactics came to light. But even more so... He has since been perceived as somewhat of a bully. Babcock, of course, was also the head coach of the Detroit Red Wings for a period of time. And former Detroit forward Johan Franzen spoke about how he, at times, did not want to show up to the hockey rink because of the way Babcock was treating him. I mean, when you're getting millions of dollars to play hockey for a living, something that is probably your number one love in life, and that's the one thing that you dreamed about doing as a kid was playing in the NHL, and you get to live that dream, and yet there is a person at your workplace that makes you think twice about getting out of bed and going to your office something about that just isn't right and then after the babcock situation the king daddy topper that came out bill peters yes former player akina Liu tweeted about his experience with peters when he was an american hockey league coach peters used the n-word when speaking to Alou, who is of course a black hockey player and he also was accused of physical abuse while he was the bench boss in carolina so peters is dealing with uh, two different allegations that are are not connected really in any way and and are, are different issues as a whole whether we're talking about physical abuse or the issue of racism but nonetheless it's the same individual that is involved in both scenarios so that's clearly a problem and something that uh, you know we have have now discussed here at length since the firing or resignation if you will if you want to call it that of bill peters uh, from his job as the head coach of the calgary flames so this is i think where the real work starts to begin right we got the stories of mike babcock and don cherry and bill peters and the fact that they're now sparking the conversation around bullying in the sport of hockey and around racism in the sport of hockey and around really what can we do 
as as people who love this sport, myself included, it is one of my favorite sports. Not one of it is my favorite sport. I grew up playing it. I started skating when I was four years old, three years old. Started playing hockey when I was four years old. I mean, I've been playing this sport my entire life. I am a Canadian. I grew up in Canada. I love hockey. It's part of our culture. Yet... Multiculturalism is a big part of what we as Canadians say that we stand for. But if we don't allow that that multiculturalism to exist within the sport of hockey, well, how Canadian is that sport really? So, like I mentioned, following all of these stories, I had the chance to start bringing this conversation a little bit more to light. I spoke with the president of APNA Hockey. APNA in Punjabi means our, and it was the very first South Asian-based hockey network in the world, and it has a goal of getting more South Asian kids involved in the sport of hockey. So I spoke with Lally Tour, like I said, the president of APNA Hockey, and he told me about his experience with racism in the sport. Lally is of, of South Asian descent, and he grew up playing high-level hockey in Edmonton, and he told me that he didn't always feel like he had been given a fair shake. So, I mean, I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, playing hockey, AAA. I played with Colm Pareko, the same St. Louis Blues, Brendan Gallagher of the Montreal Canadiens. I played at a AAA level. I never had, I felt very isolated. Um, my dad is an immigrant from uh, India that uh, immigrated over in the late 70s. So he fell in love with the game when he saw uh, Wayne Gretzky, Messier win cup after cup. So when I was born, naturally, he put me in hockey, which is odd for an immigrant family. But he worked two jobs, and he put me in it. I played AAA my whole career, and it sucked because I felt isolated. I never had a role model. There's a lot of racism that I went through in the prairies. Um, and I thought the best way to give back a couple of years ago was to start up a program where I could give back to kids something I never had growing up. So, can you, I mean, you talked a little bit about your experience there growing up and playing hockey in Edmonton. I mean, it seems like, you know, Edmonton's a fairly big city. I mean, you would think there would be a lot of kids, um, you know, playing hockey that maybe come from ethnic backgrounds, and, and maybe that wasn't necessarily the case for you growing up. No, it wasn't. Uh, I, would, I would usually be the only South Asian kid on my team, let alone the whole league. And I think I played against one South Asian kid uh, when I was about 8 or 10 at a all-star tournament in Vancouver. Um, you didn't see too much um, ethnicities playing the game of hockey, especially at the minor hockey level in the prairies. Um, that posed a lot of challenges. Um, I had some parents that would honestly just talk to me and my dad and let me know what would happen, you know, in the future. Because I was playing with the top, uh, top 1992 group, you know, from Alberta. Um, they would tell me that, you know, this is just the start of the racism, the bigotry, um, the, the the animosity, right? So, I mean, they prepared me as much as they could, but in the end, Jeff, I I. I didn't like hockey, right? I hated the politics. Um, it, it really left a sour taste in my mouth, and that's why I started the, the whole Apple Hockey Network. And right now, I mean, the conversation that's going on in the NHL, and we're talking about people like Bill Peters and, and Don Cherry, I mean, are you, I, this is, might be a you know, pretty obvious question, yeah. but I mean, are you surprised to see that it is, uh, you know, that racism still exists within hockey once you get to these higher levels? You would almost think, you know, the higher you get, uh, the more they are yeah. concerned about, you know, skill and just your ability to play should be the yeah. most important thing, but that doesn't seem to 100% anyway be the case. Yeah, and I was actually very surprised it hadn't come out earlier. Um, because you see a racism in the minor hockey levels across Canada, um, even in the States, um, all over the place. There's racism in minor hockey. So 
I was always so curious about, I never heard a story from the National Hockey League, but that's the problem. That's the culture of hockey. They keep everything quiet, right? So it's very similar to the Me Too movement with sexual harassment and abuse. These players that, these ethnic minority players that go through the system um, from uh, junior to, to pro hockey, and they're make kind of, you know, kind of achieve their goals of making the NHL, there's livelihoods at stake. So, I mean, if a coach or an organization or other players, if someone says something racially charged, they're not going to say anything because they're still trying to make it to that next level, right? So there's that, uh, there's that hush factor that uh, the culture of hockey has really grown to be known as. Um, and now that Akeem Aliou spoke out, which is, the first big step, I think we're going to hear a lot of stories. And I've already heard another story from uh, Mike Babcock and uh, um, a player of his from Detroit. And you're going to start hearing these stories now about not even racial abuse. You're going to hear verbal abuse, sexual. Um, there's lots of stuff. It's just the culture of hockey has always been um, whatever happens in the locker room stays in the locker room. But that is not the, that's not the right way of going about things. I guess how important yeah. do you think it is for these conversations to start? I mean, it's pretty clear that yeah. these conversations need to be had, and it's important yeah. ones that they're, that they're going to, you know, sort of take the steps to wean out some of this um, yeah. poor behavior, I guess, that exists yeah. within the sport at, at yeah. probably far too frequent a uh, level. But, um, I mean, do, do you see a, a shift that's going to be starting here? I mean, this is very early stages, yeah. but just how important yeah. and how critical is it to start these conversations now, and, and how long do you think it's going to really take to to see a, a cultural shift and we're going to see that cultural shift it's going to take time i was actually at the gthl hockey summit in toronto uh, a couple of weeks ago and the vp of social impact from the national hockey league kim davis uh she spoke out and had a really good speech and one thing i took out she's a black woman that represents social impact for the national hockey league I think she's one of the most well-spoken women I've ever met. Um, she said that the NHL, sometimes minorities like to see other minorities you know, in, in positions of hockey, whether it be on the ice, at the executive level, at the coaching level. So what I talked about in Toronto was the Rooney Rule from the National Football League, which they implemented in 2003. So the Rooney Rule states that for any coaching, assistant coach, executive level position in the National Football League, there has to be a ethnic minority being interviewed. So now this is something that's very powerful. I think the National Hockey League needs to take a look at this because when you start introducing more ethnicities into the decision-making of the National Hockey League, naturally it becomes more diverse, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, this is something that I brought up in Toronto and I really hope that they take it to heart and actually um, look into it and the implications of it because if you want to really change hockey, you've got to make it more diverse, not even on the ice, at the executive level, because that's the culture, right? That's the culture that's instilled in, in hockey is, is, the, is the executive level, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, instead, instead of being so hush-hush and like um, keeping everything in the, in the locker room, no, there needs to be people of uh, ethnic minorities that have very strong positions in these um, hockey organizations. Because when you look at the executive level of the National Hockey League, of the 32 teams in the National Hockey League, it's all Caucasian. Yep. So where does the culture shift?
So that was the president of Apna Hockey, Lally Tour. So he talked about his experience playing in Edmonton, a city of close to one million people, a very diverse city, but yet not much of that seemed to exist within the sport of hockey in that community. Lally raised what I thought to be a very good idea as well, a rule where people of physical minorities need to be interviewed for executive possession positions. They don't have to be necessarily hired for those positions, but they should at least have a chance to speak because as it stands right now, now, there are not enough people being given that opportunity. I think for, for the sport of hockey to grow and progress, we need to see more people of different ethnic backgrounds involved and playing. And this is one way to help make that happen. So with all of that said, what role does the government have to play in helping to diversify sport? Well, I had the chance to catch up with BC's Minister of Arts and Tourism, Lisa Bear. She is fully on board that the provincial government does need to take steps to promote inclusion in all sport, and that starts at the grass roots level. That starts, you know, within your community and within your younger versions, your younger kids that are playing these sports. They're the ones that need to really, um, you know, promote this diversity. That's where it starts. It starts in the younger age groups and it starts at that grassroots level. So if they can get more people, the province, if they can get more people of diverse backgrounds involved at a younger age, then that, of course, could eventually transition in to these pro ranks. So here's a bit of my conversation with Minister Bear, where I asked, just what role does the province have on this issue? Government should should definitely be taking a leadership role. We want to make it very clear that any kind of harassment and abuse is, is completely unacceptable. And unfortunately, we are seeing an increase uh, of these kind of incidents here across the province and really all across the world. So to that end, our, our as part of our government's work to combat racism, uh, this past summer, our parliamentary secretary, Ravi Kalan, uh, toured all across the province and met with community organizations and leaders. And he listened as people shared their experience of racism and what was actually happening in their communities. Have, have you been hearing a lot of stories about, uh, you know, concerns when it comes to inclusion in sport? Um, I'm just curious if, if, you know, from your ministry's perspective, I mean, you have sort of a, a bit of an umbrella over oversight over, over the issue of sport. I mean, have you been hearing a lot of sport, stories? I mean, uh, in BC, I know it's a very diverse province, and, and I'm just curious if, if you've been hearing anything from sort of that grassroots level. I mean, we've all heard of instances where kids aren't feeling included or they aren't feeling safe. And um, that's why our government is working at increasing participation uh, for children who are often underrepresented in sports. Um, this, can, this can include children from lower-income families, Indigenous children, um, you know, our children and youth who have disabilities, uh, girls who are underrepresented in sport, and, and newcomers to Canada. So we um, last, uh, earlier this year, announced $2.5 million investment into kids' sport, so that more than 1,000 kids from all across the province will get that chance to reach their present uh, potential and get that chance to actually play sport. Um, so that was an exciting opportunity to, to really ensure that we're being more inclusive. So given that, I mean, it's obviously good that you're, you're having some funding available to try and encourage people who maybe can't afford to do sports or, or, or to take part in some of these activities, you know, provide them that opportunity that they might not otherwise have. Um, but is there anything that you can do as a provincial oversight body to promote the idea of inclusion? And when we're talking about inclusion, I mean, like almost, I guess, non-white people to, to be involved in this kind of thing. I mean, it's kind of hard, I guess, as a directive to say, uh, you know, when, when you're trying to promote different groups to take up a sport to say, you know, make sure they're not 
a white person or whatever the case may be. I mean, you talked about Indigenous uh, representation as well off the top there. I mean, is there anything that you can do, um, you know, as a minister to, to encourage those different ethnicities to get involved? Absolutely. And this is something I feel very, very strongly about. I, I mean, I have a four-year-old daughter, and I want to be able, uh, you know, I want to make sure that she's able to participate fully in a safe, inclusive sport environment, and I want that for all children uh, and, and youth here across BC. And so um, earlier this year, I directed uh, Via Sport to develop a plan to ensure that we're uh, ensuring a safe and inclusive sport environment that's free from harassment and abuse, and that fully inclusive uh, for all children and um, we've been working with uh, via sport to develop what we're calling a safe sport program for here in BC which is going to be coming out uh, in the coming months and Jeff I'd love to come back on your program um, as soon as we release that and, and talk about more about what those concrete uh, uh, action plans are but in the meantime we're uh, as that's being developed and being released um, you know we're taking steps to make sure that we're leaders here here in BC. I want our program to be a flagship program. I want to ensure that we're leaders and I want to ensure that our kids are being taken care of. I heard from someone who has had to deal with the issue directly and I heard from government officials who are well aware of the concerns that many have when it comes to diversity in sport and specifically the sport of hockey. As I said off the top, I love hockey. It's my favorite sport and I know many out there listening feel the same as I do. 2019 was a year where we got to see a real ripple created when it comes to making hockey a more inclusive game. And hopefully in 2020, we see some of that movement actually come to fruition and some changes being made. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. And welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Friday, December the 27th, this post-Boxing Day edition of the show. Thank you so much for lending your ears my way. Really appreciate it because this show, of course, would not exist without those who listen. It's been a pleasure bringing this show to you here over these last five, six months that I've been here. I moved here in July. Uh, July 8th was my first day here at Radio NL. And there hasn't really been a bad day since I got here, I'll tell you that. It's been a pleasure to move to this community. Kamloops is a great city. I've uh, slowly begun to immerse myself in it and uh, no regrets about my decision to come here so far. I came here from Northern Ontario, from Thunder Bay, Ontario. It's been a nice transition. It's been smooth. It's been good. I have no regrets about my decision to move here at this point in time. Hopefully that doesn't change. Hopefully that doesn't change. 2019, yes, the year is almost up. We got four days left in 2019. And for me, it's been a year of change. It's been a year of progress and a year of change. And I, I've been happy with both of those so far. I've made some progress and I've made a heck of a lot of changes. And I have no regrets. As I said, I, I'll say it again. I'll say it again. And I'll say it again. I have no regrets about my decision to move to this beautiful city, this beautiful province, and this beautiful community. So thank you all out there who have been very welcoming to me. It's been great to integrate myself here and uh, yeah like I say no issues when it comes to that it's been a pleasure here over the course of these last 50 minutes to bring you this edition of the Jeff Andrea show where I took a look back at some of the interviews I've done over the course of my time here we got to talk about the issue of inclusion in sport looking at hockey and how we can make that a more diverse sport I think it's a very important subject and I think something that is going to be interesting to follow over the course of the decade here in the 20s I guess we can call it the 20s, right? This was the 2010s. But do we call it the 20s now? 
right? Because whenever you think of the 20s, you're going, oh, 1920. But I, that, that's not what we're at anymore. No, the 20s involves 2020. So that's going to be a bit of a change in mindset moving forward. But yeah, sorry, I got off topic there. It's going to be an interesting decade to see how the sport of hockey changes. Because I think it's going to be a, a lot more colorful sport here as time moves on. And I think that's going to be better for everyone. I also got to talk a little bit about ride hailing here. Uh, ride hailing, of course, uh, is something I'm hoping we see come to this province in 2020. I thought it was going to be something that already existed when I moved here. And when it wasn't, I was surprised. And, and the fact that it's still not here is a bit surprising to me as well. Uh, since I moved here, I was told it was going to be here in the fall. Then after the fall, I was told it was going to be here by Christmas. Well, now it's going to be 2020 and it's still not here. But maybe, just maybe, we'll see it in 2020. I think we will. But that being said, I wouldn't hold my breath because I can't hold it that long. <laughs> also got to talk a little bit about the issue of, of head injuries and how they seem to be more prevalent among the homeless population. That's something that uh, is a bit disturbing, but it's important information to be aware of. Like I, I spoke with some mental health professionals who say that having that information will change a little bit the way they approach dealing with some of these more marginalized individuals and uh, being able to give them the proper care is the best way to uh, see them have a path forward. So I think that's important as well. So thanks so much for tuning in. It's been a great show. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it in full, well, it's going to be up uh, podcasted soon, so you can check that out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, that's your opportunity to do so. So check me out, The Jeff Andrea Show. Just give it a quick Google search and you'll find me. No problem. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or or a long while, just know I enjoyed her time while it lasted. Have a great weekend. I'll be back here on Monday at 9.